This is Big Sean. Where's Fifth Harmony? What's happening? This is Adam Levine from Maroon 5. I'm Calvin Harris. Yours truly, Jason Derulo. Hi, we're One Direction, and this is Gary Hoffman. This is Selena Gomez. This is Shannon Farron. This is Rihanna. Gary. What's up, guys? This is Justin Bieber. Shannon. And you are behind the scenes. Gary and Shannon. Shannon, the uh, good news is that it doesn't smell funny in the room today, but Handel left half of his lunch on the chair again, so. Oh, boy. What? So there's no smell, though? No, not that I can sense. The chair. Whoa, I, par- I just park- spilled again. Look at that. Parked it right in front of you there, Joe. Ah, you can see what's going on. Smell it through the glass No, I mean, window. look at the food. It's just, it's like his bottom lip didn't work. I think I saw Neil, like, shaking it out yesterday. It's so gross. Jeez. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, the Gary and Shannon show today. Sons Shannon. She's a travel day because tomorrow night, actually, <coughs> Chargers play in Oakland tomorrow night. I know it's far away and all, but uh, today is their travel day. So we'll hear from her once again on Friday when we do have a big event coming up on Friday. It's going to be right at the beginning of the show. You are not going to want to miss it. And it is the thing that we are saying. There's a potential to get us in trouble with some management people. So are you sure? Am I sure that it's... That you're going to do it? Oh, yes. I'm sure we're going to do okay. it. Um, I'm not sure what the punishment will be, but um, but we shall see. Hey, there's a press conference scheduled at 11 o'clock this morning to update us on the escape of those two inmates from Monterey County Jail. Apparently, Border Patrol picked them up. So sheriff's detectives are currently transporting both of them back to Monterey County. They're going to do a, a news conference at 11 o'clock. These are two guys, both of them wanted on different murder charges. Uh, or in jail on different murder charges, and we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on that story. But they have been captured. Also, the uh, the latest out of Congress is that Democrats announced they will hold the first public hearings next week in their impeachment inquiry of President Trump. Three State Department officials are expected to testify in hearings on November thirteenth, and then again on Friday the fifteenth, according to uh, to Adam Schiff. We'll talk a lot about that. Coming up in Swamp Watch, also the latest on those uh, those other elections that took place yesterday. Kentucky, Virginia, uh, New Jersey, uh, all of those different places where a lot of people were putting a lot of emphasis on whether or not these elections were going to be an indicator of uh, enthusiasm or levels of support for one side or the other. So we'll talk about that coming up uh, at 1230 when we get into Swamp Watch. I wanted to start, though, with the latest on the killings of this family from North Mexico. And the let me just say the, the Mormon church, the LDS church, is saying, yes, we're heartbroken, but those are not Mormons. They do live in a sect where... They may have followed some of the Mormon tenets, but according to the LDS church, they don't follow our church, and therefore they're not Mormons. But we're still heartbroken. There's a lot that goes into the history of this family and why they started, why they were in that area of Mexico, and, and why it is that they were there when this uh, the shooting took place. And I got I to gotta tell you, it's hard for me to believe that this would have been a mistaken identity thing. 
This family, these groups of people, these American-Mexican dual citizenship people who are living in these sects, have been there for decades. And the idea that a drug cartel would mistake them for a rival cartel doesn't make any sense to me. So we'll go through some of the details of this. We understand, according to the the Mexican defense officials, that the killers were apparently members of a, a drug cartel from Juarez. And its armed wing, uh, La Linea, the line, this Juarez cartel had gone into Sinaloa cartel territory and set up an armed outpost on a hilltop and an ambush farther up the road. That's what these this family drove into, they're saying. And while still Mexican officials are suggesting that they may have mistaken, the, the gunman may have mistaken these large SUVs for those of a rival gang, That doesn't make sense because some of the women in this, some of the mothers who were driving jumped out of their cars and were waving their hands to let them know they're not armed and they're not. Well, if you're a Mexican drug cartel and you realize that you're going to kill a bunch of white, white ladies and kids, it doesn't make sense for you to then continue your shooting, expecting this to be a rival cartel. The Juarez cartel apparently wanted to send a message, though, that it did control the road into Chihuahua. And it was that group of people that ended up shooting these vehicles. And it was only after the first vehicle was shot up and started burning that 50 or 60 Sinaloa cartel gunmen showed up to see what happened. The mothers were driving in these separate vehicles with their kids from the La Mora religious community where they lived. Been there for decades. We'll talk more about the history of this uh, next segment. But been there for decades in this state of Sonora. And when it happened, there were nine people, three women and six children who, who ended up dead at the end of this. Eight children survived and those surviving children not only escaped the drug cartel who killed their moms but they were able to hide in the brush for hours until mexican officials the good guys mexican officials showed up to help them five wounded children were seriously injured enough that mexican authorities flew them to the border in a military helicopter knowing that they would get better medical care in the united states three other kids not wounded are in the care of family members there in still in La Mora. Authorities in Utah, where they have a lot of ties, obviously, believe that the same cartel responsible for their killing is running operations in, in Utah. Think about that. So not only are they running the cartel operations in Mexico, whatever footprint they have in Utah, they believe that this is the same thing, which leads me to believe that this was not that case of mistaken identity. In the aftermath of all of this, by the way, some of the details have come out about how some of the kids were able to survive. For example, 13-year-old Devin, not hurt, but Devin covered up his injured brothers and sisters with branches to hide them before he turned around and walked home about 13 miles back to La Mora to get help. He got there about six hours after the shooting. Family members called the called the cops, basically. They called the federales. 
before they themselves armed themselves to go out and search for the injured children. Another one, mom, Christina, had been credited. She died, but she was credited with saving her children's lives after she stashed her seven-month-old baby, Faith, on the floor of that Chevy Suburban and got out of the vehicle. Tried to wave her arms to show that she was not a threat. She was about 15 feet away from the, uh, sorry, 15 yards away from the SUV when they found her bullet-riddled body. The baby was unharmed, still in the car, back seat, floor of the uh, SUV, when the family members showed up at the scene hours later. Now, this, this idea of it being a random mistake doesn't ring true to me. And we'll tell you why. These are not new members. This is not tourists driving through an area. These people have lived in La Mora for a long time. And if you're a drug cartel, you know who they are for a couple of reasons. Number one, they are there. Physically, they've been there for a long time. The second thing is you've already had fights with them. There were already issues of violence between the cartel and the family members, and awkwardly enough, between the family members themselves. We'll explain this whole weird history of this group when we come back. Gary and Shanna will continue. You got a chance at $1,000. We'll tell you how you can win it in a few minutes. Don't forget, if you win that $1,000, they will contact you by phone. You got to make sure you answer that phone. Might be from a number you don't recognize, like, uh, oh, I don't know, 513 area code. Another chance to win next hour, 20 minutes after the hour. And in fact, a chance to win a thousand bucks an hour, Monday through Friday, from five in the morning with Jonesy and Wake Up Call, or in this case, Monica, and all the way right through the 620 time here on KFI. A couple stories we're following. We'll get into a little bit more. Uh, Kentucky's race for governor has gone into overtime. The Democrat there did declare victory. The Republican governor, Matt Bevin, has not conceded. Because uh, right now it's just a difference of a few hundred, uh, sorry, a few thousand votes. And while Governor Bevin did say that there were some irregularities, he didn't give any specifics. Now, to that end, the Associated Press hasn't declared a winner in that race either. So uh, we'll talk about that coming up in uh, Swamp Watch. At the bottom of the hour, we'll do What You Watch in Wednesday. Talk about Little Mermaid Live. I know Joe spent good two hours on that last night. If I ever get caught watching one of those live (laughs) musical things, I'm Uh, probably... There was one thing about that show that was fantastic, and the rest of it was like, well, okay, I see what you're doing. Ooh, it's, are you going to do some singing? Me? Yes. No. Huh. But uh, we'll talk about Jack Ryan season two as Ooh. well. That's a good, that's a really, and some That's season, more my jam. Season three news as well for, for Jack Ryan. We've been talking about this family that was killed in North Mexico, um, uh, founded as part of an offshoot of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, uh, after the church abandoned the practice of polygamy way back in the late 1800s. So there were some people who still thought polygamy was worth it, and they decided that they would go to Mexico to set up their new colonies and get out from under the thumb of what was then the Mormon church and the officials thereof. So the LeBaron family, that was the majority of the people that were that were ended up uh, that were killed this week were members of the LeBaron family group, etc. The LeBaron family was founded by Alma Dayer LeBaron. He set up the community with his family way back in the 20s, like the 1920s, after he was excommunicated from the Mormon church. 
He died about, I think it was 17, no, 27 years later, died in 51, and gave over his leadership of the group to his son, Joel. And they aligned themselves with another sort of an offshoot of an offshoot called the Church of the Firstborn, Salt Lake City. So Joel and his younger brother, Ervil, fell out of... uh, you know, fell out of favor with each other. They're arguing about leadership. So Ervil sets up yet another offshoot of the offshoot in San Diego back in 1972. Ervil was one of those guys who really liked women. I mean, to the point where he had 13 wives. And Ervil, the younger brother, in full biblical fashion, had his older brother killed back in 1972. And he was actually tried and convicted for Joel's murder in 1974. He writes a 400-page commandment while in prison to kill disobedient church members. And if you needed help figuring out who they were, he included a hit list in this commandment. Irville eventually dies in prison, 1981. But a half dozen of his family members organized what they referred to as the 4 o'clock murders. They saw an eight-year-old child and three former members shot dead within minutes of each other in 1988 in Texas. So, Ervil's son, Heber, was held in connection with those murders in Texas and Utah. Another son, Aaron, jailed for 45 years in conviction uh, in a conviction connected to those murders. So, listen, the idea that violence was new to this group is not real. These guys had a history of violence even within the family. Many of these residents of La Mora, this community where they were living, identified as Mormon, even though they considered themselves independent from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in fact, the Mormon church in Salt Lake, in response to all of these, uh, to the story of these uh, violent deaths this week, simply said, listen, we're heartbroken over it, but they ain't Mormons. The idea also that this um, this violence was in the past is not necessarily true, because it was only about nine or ten years ago one of the one of the sixteen year old kids from this sect was kidnapped and held for ransom. Nobody paid it. The kid was eventually released. Then in twenty ten, two members of the Mormon community in Chihuahua, including one member from the LeBaron family, one of the sides of the, uh, one of the group in this situation was killed in an apparent revenge after security forces tracked drug gang members. So they've been known to the drug cartels. They know the drug cartels. They also happen to know violence within their own walls. So, again, I don't think this is an accidental moms stumble upon a uh, an ambush by drug cartel members. It, it just appears to me to be much more of a targeted thing. The other question I have is when slash if our FBI gets involved in this. We have a huge federal presence in Mexico, at least investigatively. Huge. And, it you know, the, the president of Mexico appears to be a hug junkie when it comes to going after these drug cartel people. He wants to hug them and not declare war on them. Because his country has already been racked with thousands of murders. So I don't know what the plan is, but he should call in and ask the FBI to help out. All right, coming back. What you watching Wednesday? Little Mermaid Live, 
uh, All in the Family Live is coming back next month. We'll talk about uh, Jack Ryan Season 2 and some other big news about shows coming up. That's coming up next. Gary and Shannon will continue. Shannon, on this uh, Wednesday, it is November 6th, KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. One of the stories uh, Joe just mentioned, we'll keep an eye on the reports of a man with a gun at Mount San Jacinto College, Riverside County Sheriff's Department, said they got the call about an hour ago and the campus has been on lockdown. They said they have several law enforcement personnel on scene. Stay out of the area. Follow instructions if you run into any of the law enforcement officers there. It is a fluid situation. No reports of any injuries at this time. Uh, and no reports of any shots fired, which is important. Apparently, um, the press enterprise is reporting that the man entered into the cafeteria area, or I guess like the where they have all the eateries there, Yeah, there pointed was, a gun and then walked out. There was one tweet that said that somebody saw him in a cafeteria. Uh, but again, no shots fired, at least, that we've we've heard of. And at that point, just a report of somebody with a gun on campus, they, Mount San Jacinto College. They did. T- uh, the Riverside County Sheriff's Department said that they have not uh, found the person yet and that it's still ongoing. So to do, you know, avoid the area or if you're on campus to shelter in place. Due diligence. All right. Uh, top of next hour, we're going to be talking about Governor Newsom meeting with the uh, members of uh, PG&E's board. Uh, nearly a dozen mayors have come up with this idea to make utilities a customer-owned co-op, which is a step in the right direction, but it doesn't solve all the problems that we're looking at with PG&E. But on Wednesdays, we get a chance to talk about the small screen, some TV stuff. The following program is brought to you in living color. What you watching in there? Americans love television. They wean their kids on it. USA television much better. You've been watching too many of those live television shows. <laughs> Before we get to the uh, Little Mermaid Live that was last night and some of the other shows that are important and worth watching, I wanted to play this for you because I thought this was great. Remember we talked on uh, Tuesday about Monday Night Football's Magic Cat, the black cat that showed up at uh, the Meadowlands in the game between the Cowboys and the Giants, and Kevin Harlan did a great job of doing the play-by-play. Somebody put together an actual mini documentary on this cat, which is... (laughs) Absolutely, it's like got players. Jared Goff is in it as well. It's pretty funny. The football life. Hey, he's my least favorite to play against the league. Winning the Heisman by a unanimous vote, the cat had huge expectations going into the league, and boy did he deliver! The cat runs into the end zone. Yeah, uh, he's like really good at football. The feline would dominate the NFL Combine, posting a record-breaking 2.8-second 40-yard dash. And almost threw my hot dog at the screen. Being such a natural talent, some scouts worried about his work ethic. Like somebody almost questioned his competitiveness, which was an absolute joke. But the cat only used those doubts as motivation. I got a chance to work out with him. I thought that I was in shape and I was going to be able to hang with him. I ended up throwing up in the workout. (laughs) He'll go down as one of the greatest players this sport has ever seen. Uh, I had as much fun coaching him as anybody I've ever coached. Just clever. It was a silly thing, and I thought the cat was very funny. So uh, last night on ABC, they did a full Little Mermaid live. 
And you trust me, you do not have to go watch it. This is not an important, groundbreaking, earth-shattering new development in television. Although I will say, Queen Latifah as Ursula the Sea Witch just absolutely nailed it. In the past, I've been a nest. They weren't kidding when they called me well a witch. Don't you find that nowadays I've mended all my ways. Repented, seen the light, and made a switch to these. And I fortunately know now, a little They did all of the singing, all of the song performances were live, but they would intersperse that with actual video from the movie from 1989. So all of the dialogue parts were the cartoon. The singing parts were these really overdone choreographed singing numbers that were done in front of a live studio audience. Uh... John Stamos as the chef that prepares the the uh, the fish and the end. He's doing the crabs. Remember that? Let me play a little bit of that because you get to hear John Stamos sing. Le poisson, le poisson, how I love le poisson. Love to chop and to save little fish. First I cut off their head, then I pull out their bone. On the weed, this is too sure the dish. Okay, I don't know. Women cannot resist a man singing show tunes. I agree. It's so powerful, even a lot of men can't resist a man singing show tunes. Uh, it got a lot of criticism online. It combined the footage, like I said, from the film with live-action musical numbers. And someone said it lacked the production value that we've seen, especially when it comes to the, I guess, the Broadway version of it is pretty spectacular. And this one looked kind of B-rated by, uh, by comparison. And Shaggy... You know, Shaggy did Sebastian the Lobster, Under the Sea was the song that he did. He didn't have claws. Why Why would you not put claws on that guy? Anyway. What? It, Even more reason not to watch it. Exactly. Not that I ever would, but. Exactly. Now, they got a lot of points for being so woke. There were black mermaids. There were big mermaids. There were little mermaids. Like, they... I get okay. Gender fluid. There, there were probably some gender fluid, but we can't see what's going on under that tail. Who knows? What I loved is that ABC said we don't care. the The head of ABC basically said, "I don't care what anyone else thinks," and you don't have to. The guy said, the senior vice president of alternative series specials and late night programming, Robert Mills, said it's ridiculous. That uh, people are worried that Shaggy didn't have claws. For those wondering, Shaggy wore crab claws in early rehearsals and it looked ridiculous. Which I thought was yeah, because that's what made it that's ridiculous. What, that's the part that made it crazy. Not the fact that uh, Prince Eric looked like a total goober. Um, but again, Queen Latifah's number was absolutely spectacular. When we come back, tell you about uh, Jack Ryan season two. I've only got a couple episodes left in season two, and this is absolute. This is my version of what I think a perfect TV is. Oh, I thought you were going to give it a bad review because I haven't started yet. No, this is – it's just intelligent enough that you got to pay attention to what's going on. But it's also filled with enough action and other stuff that's going on. It's super easy to watch, plus an update on some other ABC Live TV stuff that's coming up and, um, and, and why streaming services might be cheaper than you think. We'll talk about that when we continue What You're Watching Wednesday. Shannon, KFI AM 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. 
Shannon on a travel day today. Chargers actually have a short week. They're playing in Oakland tomorrow night. She may be, she may be suffering from some sort of a rhino sickness, whatever that would be. Told you about the uh, activity right around Mount San Jacinto College. Riverside County Sheriff's Department said that a man with a gun was reported on the Mount San Jacinto campus this morning. No shots were fired. One of the reports, according to Twitter, was that somebody saw this person walk into a cafeteria, apparently. But they are still on lockdown. Shelter in place is what they're suggesting. Anyone seen walking around will be taken in by the sheriff's department. Uh, the They're telling people to stay tuned to texts, emails, and any social media for further updates. And at this point, Mount San Jacinto College says that all classes are canceled until noon today. As they try to find this person again, no shots fired, no reports of any injuries or anything. But they said that there was a report of a man with a gun on campus. Uh, we're doing what you watch on Wednesday, talking about some TV stuff. And uh, just yesterday, right before they did Little Mermaid Live, ABC announced that they will be doing another one of those All in the Family lives that they did last year. They did All in the Family and the Jeffersons. In uh, let's see, December eighteenth, they're going to do All in the Family and Good Times. I didn't realize that Good Times was a spinoff of All in the Family. Well, actually, All in the Family was a spun-off Maud, and then Maud spun off Good Times. Good Times aired for six seasons and had, of course, uh, Esther Roll, John Amos, Jimmy Walker, Janet Jackson was a part of that as well. They have not yet said who's going to be involved in the cast for the new live shows, whether they're going to bring back people like... Um, uh, Woody Harrelson and Marissa Tomei as uh, Archie and Edith, which would be great. Because if they do, then, you know, they can re-record their song if they want to. Away, play. Songs that made the hit parade. All right. Uh, Jack Ryan season two uh, on Amazon Prime. This is a really, I think this is a great show. Brian Suits texted me and said it's C-R-A-P-P. Crap. What? tried to give season two a chance listen i i love it here's the thing about it that that i think is so well done first of all the jack ryan movies any of the tom clancy movies whether it was harrison ford or alec Baldwin or anything they're classics but i almost wanted them to be longer because i think there was so much that goes into it that it is longer um there's a couple of scenes in this one that are reminiscent of some of the Jack Ryan movies, the Tom Clancy movies. One specifically was Patriot Games, and I'm not going to give it away by saying which scene it is, but when you see it, it makes perfect sense. They've done that type of a scene before. One of the questions that came up about Jack Ryan season two is, where's Abby Cornish? Abby Cornish, of course, was the uh, was the woman who played uh, Jack Ryan's love interest, Kathy Mueller, the doctor that specialized in the infectious diseases and they sort of hit it off in the middle of season one and they get together and hook it up by the begin by the end of season one by the way not only is she not in this they don't mention her what maybe it didn't work out spoiler alert jack ryan hooks up with somebody right away in Ooh, season two no he did not yes he did so well i don't blame him and they, but they don't mention anything they don't say why she's not there they don't talk about maybe maybe she got abducted but then they would have said something it's like, true. hey, where's your doctor girlfriend? And he would have said she got abducted. <laughs> I don't know. Something like that. Uh, but I love I, I love this show. Uh, it The first season, it took me a few episodes to get past Jim from the office 
True. playing Jack Ryan. But he's so good. But he does a great job yeah. with it. Um, so that Jack Ryan is on Amazon Prime. And then Kate McKinnon from Saturday Night Live has just signed up to do an adaptation of a podcast called Joe Exotic. Uh, Universal Content Productions is doing this. And this is interesting because this is the story of Carol Baskin, played by Kate McKinnon, who learns about the fellow exotic animal lover, a guy named Joe Schreibvogel. Remember Joe Exotic? He was breeding and using those big cats for profit. I'm going to tell you the whole story is based in Florida. That may ring a bell. And then she she tries to shut him down. And then eventually the claws come out. Her checkered past comes out. Joe Exotic eventually kills her, allegedly. And it just a, it's just a crazy story. It came out of a podcast. Uh, of a news story that we talked about many times about Joe Exotic and his crazy big cat thing. So she's going to be doing that. The other thing is that that Kate uh, McKinnon is doing, she's going to play Elizabeth Holmes in a series on Hulu about Theranos, which is based on the ABC podcast, The Dropout, that was done by friend of the show, Rebecca Jarvis. Did you finish The Theranos? Uh, I, I saw could the, not. I saw the documentary I, version. I didn't. I didn't listen to the podcast though. No, the um, the, the documentary yeah. that that explains a hand yeah. wave. <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I could not. I. It was great. I it, that girl irked me so much that she wasted so much money on total C R A P P Y as a but, suit said. But hang on, she is. She still stands by this whole thing. Oh, she crazy. Well, we know you and I know that. Mm-hmm. I don't know why she doesn't know that, uh, and that she was able to take some of the smartest people in the world for millions and millions of dollars. But all right, when we come back. The latest with Governor Newsom meeting with PG and E, and what the plan is. A bunch of mayors want to get into this idea of making uh, PG and E a customer-owned co-op. Why that m- might work next on Gary and Shannon. Shannon, KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Coming up a little bit later in the show, it's a great story about a guy who comes from Britain. A guy came to Hollywood to be an actor. Had a couple of small roles, you know, medium-sized IMDb page. That's how you measure the man these days. And he decides that he wants to do something more meaningful. So he finds his way to North Syria to fight ISIS. Well, after that's over, a couple of uh, voluntary tours in the fight against ISIS, he's stuck in Belize trying to come back into the United States. And uh, how? what the bargaining chip is that he thinks he has. We'll talk about that. 1230, we'll jump into Swamp Watch, talk about what's been going on in Washington, D.C., specifically House Democrats announced they're going to hold their first public hearings next week when it comes to the impeachment inquiry. Three State Department officials are expected to testify. Adam Schiff made that announcement Earlier today, we'll also follow up on Gordon Sundland's description of quid pro quo and whether or not, you know, he changed his uh, testimony to say, yes, there was quid pro quo. People lost their minds yesterday. But when you read the actual transcript, all he's saying is that President Trump 
wanted the president of Ukraine to make a public statement about fighting corruption, not the quid pro quo specifically to get information on Joe or Hunter Biden. So we'll talk about that. And sleep divorce. Sleep divorce. People, they have a problem sleeping together, so they're in separate bedrooms, separate beds. And I'm not talking about like Lucy and Desi. I'm like real people in separate beds. We'll talk about that. All right. Yesterday, Gavin Newsom put on his uh, school marm hat and called uh, PG&E into a closed-door meeting yesterday. And he sat there with some members of uh, governments, local governments from around the state, to yell at Bill Johnson, the PG&E CEO, saying that we got to figure out a plan. we got to do something here. Because these blackouts that we have seen prevented people from refilling life-saving prescriptions, from powering breathing machines, small businesses, schools were closed for days. People were just inconvenienced in 21st century California. The governor also reiterated the state would consider taking over PG&E altogether if they cannot resolve their bankruptcy by June 30th. Now, another thing about June 30th, that deadline, that next June 30th, 2020, is that that is the state-mandated deadline if PG&E is going to have any access to the $21 billion wildfire fund. That was passed in an assembly bill. So there is a real deadline here. We're not just floating in the sea waiting for PG&E to pull its head out of its uh, uh, the slot. And Bill Johnson, remember Bill Johnson made this comment the other day about uh, what do you tell people who lost a couple hundred dollars worth of food in their refrigerator when it was blacked out for four and a half days? And he said, well, at least, basically, at least you got a refrigerator to go home to, right? You didn't die. The guy's just an a-hole who has absolutely zero context about what's going on. And when when he was out of this meeting with Gavin Newsom yesterday, Bill Johnson comes out and tells reporters that these public safety power shutoffs have been well-planned and executed. 100% incorrect. The vast majority of people probably would say, yeah, my power went out for a day and I was fine. But the thing is, there are still tens of thousands of people who were without power for three days or four days. There's a headline I found online just a few moments ago that said, California's burning in the dark. Think about that. We can't fight fires the way we should be, and we don't have electricity. We're turning back into like a 16th century version of what the state should be. Bill Johnson comes out of this meeting yesterday and says, quote, I came to California with one basic purpose. Let's make sure we don't kill anybody at our operations. (laughs) The guy That guy leads the largest utility in the state, and he says that his job is just not to kill anybody? Uh, I'll continue the quote. I think we achieved that this year. uh, Hold on. You don't know if you killed anybody? And he says, I understand the hardship. I apologize for it. But for me, safety has to come first. Yes, because you're already on the hook for $30 billion. Dumbass. Last year, winds knocked down PG&E lines just south of Paradise, California, almost exactly a year ago. 
It burned down 18,000 buildings. It killed 85 people. About two months later, PG&E files for bankruptcy, January of this year. And this year, we've seen them aggressively shut off power during these windy conditions, the red flag conditions, to try to prevent wildfires. Here's the thing. The tough part for them PR-wise is you can't prove the negative. You can't then go say, after four days of no electricity, well, gosh, we didn't start fires and kill people. Well, no, neither did I, which is weird. I didn't start any fires in those four days or kill people either. Mayors and local leaders from about two dozen cities and counties around PG&E's operating space, they have an alternative idea. They want to see regulators consider a proposal to convert the utility into a customer-owned cooperative. They outlined this in a letter to CPUC, and it was an idea that was actually floated by Governor Newsom and by the mayor of San Jose. They want to see PG&E under the ownership of profit-driven investors, and they said that would allow PG&E to begin the process of restoring public confidence, uh, and that would allow the public to have a greater role in determining the decisions that have come to define the matters of life and death, where the money goes that we as customers, have to spend for our electricity, determining how it is that we're going to be able to do this and how to go through these public safety power shutoffs without screwing with everyone's lives. Is there a better way to do this? That's the frustrating part that I don't see from Governor Newsom. Governor Newsom has at his beck and call, I mean, if he doesn't have any power over them, but imagine if he were to say, to 10 of the most important and smart utility people in the country. Come to us with a plan. Give me an idea. Cocktail napkin a plan for me on how to make sure that we don't have to endure public safety power shutoffs for the next decade and still keep people safe from the danger of a utility-started wildfire. There's got to be somebody out there who has an idea. We come back. wanted to talk about rebuilding paradise. What it is that's going on with the 18,000 buildings that were lost and the a few thousand that were still there in paradise. Oh, and did you hear about this woman? She was, she was scamming somebody out of paradise, a 75-year-old victim of the campfire. She embezzled $60,000. All right, we'll talk about that when we come back to Gary and Shannon. Also, a chance at 1000 bucks you can pick up. We'll tell you how you can do that. I'll give you Shannon, KFI AM 640 Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. If you win that $1,000, well, they'll tell you by phone, so you're going to have to answer uh, what probably looks like a random call from a number you don't recognize. It might be from a 513 area code. Another chance to win an hour from now, that $1,000. In fact, we're giving away $1,000 once an hour, Monday through Friday from 5 in the morning through 620 at night. Right here on KFI. Voters in big swaths of Kentucky and Virginia went with Democrats. Uh, Associated Press says that may be complicating the president's path to re-election if this this attitude holds. The Democratic candidates who made gains yesterday did so by avoiding the Medicare for all extreme left version of the Democratic Party. Uh, Those ones that uh, have been 
you know, the Elizabeth Warrens and uh, Bernie Sanders portion of the party. So that may also be a big indicator about what their plan is going forward, what Democrats need to do if they're going to try to unseat Donald Trump come November. All right, we're talking about this, uh, the PG&E meeting with the governor yesterday and uh, what goes into what's coming next, I should say, for PG&E. About a year ago was when 19,000 homes, businesses, and buildings burned in the town of Paradise, caused by PG&E, the campfire was. 85 people were killed. November 8th, by the way, was the actual date of that. A year later... Nine homes have been rebuilt. Nine. Now, they are on track to issue 500 building permits by the end of this year, but nine have been rebuilt. Because a lot of people just got up and left. They can't do that again. And here's the thing, not just because of the fire. Libby and Jason Hale... Their home was untouched by the fire. I mean, a bunch of their neighbors lost their homes, but but their home was untouched. They have a big, huge, wide skirt of gravel around their house, fire-resistant stucco construction, protected it from the flames. Fire danger is not what's driving them out of paradise now. It's PG&E. They work from home, at least, uh, at least Libby does. And she says, if this is going to be our new normal for 10 years, I can't do this for 10 years. I can't have repeated blackouts over and over again every time the wind blows. Uh, the issue of danger in paradise, if even if it's PG&E, they're, gosh, I can't believe I was the cliche, they're not out of the woods yet. I mean, they're technically out of the woods because all their trees burned. But there are people who are saying, we still love this place. They do not want to leave. There were 3.66 million tons of burnt stuff, charred and toxic ruins. 3.66 million tons that were removed from the town of Paradise. That's, that's basically twice the tonnage that came out of the World Trade Center site after the 9-11 attacks. One of the town council members in Paradise says, when you drive around, you don't see all the carcasses anymore of the houses and the cars, because they've all been taken away, you hear hammers and chainsaws and nail guns. One of the wildlife mitigation consultants who's been talking with city leaders says he's afraid the paradise is just setting itself up for another disaster. The five routes that were uh, running out of paradise that day, five ways to get out of town, one of them major, the other four totally minor, They all got gridlocked with traffic. A lot of the 200 miles worth of roads in Paradise were privately owned, many of them super narrow. They're dead-ended into someone's property that led through small, densely forested lots. Some of them went into creeks or ravines and never came out the other side. In fact, authorities found five bodies in and around vehicles that were trapped at the end of a long road with no way out. So to try to make Paradise safe... City officials are going to have to start fresh. A brand new grid of interconnected streets and alleys. They're going to spend millions of dollars a year to keep brush and trees in check and force homeowners to keep their properties clear, which is also something that pisses off people from paradise. 
part of the reason they're there is they don't like all of the ongoing government control of what they can do and not do on their property. Although, when it comes to fire safety, doesn't that make a little bit of sense? And if you take away all of the trees, not just trees on the property that are within a certain distance of your home, but trees that are close to these roadways. Part of the problem when the fire struck was trees would burn and fall across a four-lane highway and basically block that highway until something big enough came along to push it out of the way. They're talking about moving trees away from the roadways as well. Vincent Childs lives in paradise and says, if you take away all the trees, that's why we're here. That's why we call it paradise is because of the trees. It's like living in a national forest. They got a ways to go. They got a ways to go before they can improve all of the evacuation routes, the emergency warnings, all of that still under consideration. And even if they remove 100,000 trees from the from in and around paradise, They've got hundreds of thousands of other trees that they're looking for, trying to make sure that they are not in danger. The complete opposite of that, flooding. Army Corps Engineers has put a red flag on one of our Southern California dams that could be overwhelmed in the event of a storm. We'll talk about that when we come back to Gary and Shannon. Shannon, KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Shannon on a travel day. Charters are in Oakland tomorrow night. Seems like it's really far away. Why she's taking today off, too. That's a lot of work. To go to Oakland? Well, there's a lot of talking, you know. Gotta rest. (laughs) Your face. Look, she's one of my good friends. So I think actually gonna... she is. She was going to walk part of the way. Oh, okay. So that may be why. She has anyway, to be there. We uh, are following. A, I uh, am the Marshawn Lynch of radio. <laughs> there is a, <laughs> there's a story out of the Netherlands. Uh, Dutch military police are investigating what they're saying is a suspicious incident on a plane at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. However, that's. Basically, all they're saying, the airport said on Twitter that the Royal Netherlands Marshalse is a brand of the Dutch military there in a branch of the Dutch military. They're investigating a situation on board a plane at the airport. The federal police have not provided any details about why they were called, saying only that several gates were closed off. About seven o'clock, I said it would be almost eight o'clock in the local time. It said, the only thing I can tell you, one of the airport spokespeople, the one I can, thing I can tell you is that military police are investigating a suspicious situation. And that is it on a plane at Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport in the Netherlands. So uh, if we see anything, we'll definitely bring that to you. Um, the update as well about uh, Mount San Jacinto College still on lockdown. Classes have been canceled until noon. Has that changed at all, Joe? It's still classes canceled till noon. Uh, the last update on their website said that classes were canceled, period. Oh, okay. So, well, then that makes more sense. 
because uh, if they're 20 minutes away and they haven't lifted yeah. that yet. Okay, so it looks like classes are going to be canceled today. Mount San Jacinto College. Again, the report was originally that they somebody saw someone walking around with a gun. No report of shots fired, no reports of any injuries yet, but uh, they're definitely looking for whoever it is that was carrying that gun. And then in Northern California, we're expecting to get an update relatively soon. A couple of murder suspects who bounced out of jail in uh, Monterey County were picked up uh, per- picked up by Border Patrol, I believe it is, and were uh, returned to Monterey County. So we'll hear more about that a little bit later. Hey, right. by the way, Gary, yeah. um, they've also locked down near that San Jacinto Col- uh, Community College campus, um, Clayton Record Junior Elementary, SJ Leadership Academy, and Betty Gibble Learning Center. Okay. So a bunch of places. So more, there. yeah. So the search continues and, yeah. Well, yesterday the uh, Army Corps of Engineers say that they raised a risk factor for the Mojave, Ro- Mojave River Dam from low to high urgency actions because of performance concerns at this uh, almost 50-year-old dam. By the way, if you were to see this thing, you would not believe that it was a dam, at least not the way we think of it. When it rains pretty heavily, uh, Deep Creek will sort of uh, form up behind Mojave River Dam, and you will see... You know, it's it. First of all, it's dry. I mean, all the satellite pictures that you see, you drive by today, it's dry. Both sides of this dam, dry as a bone. The concern is if we do see El Nino conditions in one of those, you know, 100 year storms or 500 year storms, that we could see a problem. So they're trying to figure out, the Army Corps of Engineers, whether or not they should shore up the dam. The dam was built in 1971. Uh, they're saying that if, in fact, this thing, failed it's a 200 foot tall earthen dam right there on the northern flanks of the san bernardino mountains that they said it would send water rushing down the river channel inundating sixteen thousand people billion and a half dollars worth of property and would go as far away as baker more than 100 miles to the northwest this is again this is at the base of the mountains the san bernardino mountains if you were to go to say apple valley and go due south that's what you're going to see And the river that sort of rolls through the Mojave Narrows Regional Park, Spring Valley Lake, it goes right by Victor Valley College. That sort of dry creek bed area that you may know is what is fed by the water that would be released by the Mojave River Dam. Flood flows have never, ever, 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 ever gone over the top of that dam. There was a series of storms about 15 years ago. That did raise the water level record, uh, water level behind the dam to a record 77 feet. I'm going to say this because this is almost crazy, but that was the record level, 77 feet. That's still 72 feet below the concrete emergency spillway. As we saw with what happened at the Oroville Dam a couple of years ago, if you get water over the top of those concrete emergency spillways, There are times when it will begin to eat away at the opposite side of that dam. It will eat away at what is supposed to be the dry side of that dam. And if that's the case, that's what the uh, Corps of Engineers is concerned about, that it would actually erode from the backside of that dam. That causes it to collapse. That becomes an uncontrolled release. And that's when they're talking about the potential for this thing to flood 16,000 people and destroy uh, all of that property. 
the thing is that would take a, in their version, that would take a 900-year storm. It's not, not to say that a storm like that occurs every 900 years. It just means that a storm has a 1 in 900 chance of occurring any given year. So a 900-year storm is not necessarily the best moniker, but that's the one that we've been using. The estimates used previously by federal engineers were intended to protect the region from a storm like the one that hit California during the rainy season of 1861 and 62. They said there were storms that hammered California for 45 days and dropped 36 inches of rain on Los Angeles. And even if, even if this thing did erode, even if there was a catastrophic failure, not quite like the one we saw in Oroville, but um, the, the one like that, they're saying that there could be danger. The thing is, these dams, it would take a pant load of, of water to get over the top of that dam. Remember, even the record was 72 feet shy of going over the emergency spillway. All right, when we come back, uh, try to get an update on the situation on board that plane at the airport in Amsterdam, whatever that may be. Uh, And USC is now cutting the number of trustees on its board. They're going to impose some age limits. They're going to do more diversity because our strength is our diversity and our diversity is our strength or something like that. And why this is a potentially good step for USC, if nothing else, public relations wise. Gary and Shannon will continue in a moment. Gary and Shannon. KFI AM 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. A couple of uh, developing stories we're following. You heard Joe mention Mount San Jacinto College. Uh, There was a report of a man with a gun. No reports of an active shooter or anything like that. In fact, no reports of any shots fired even. Just a report of a man with a gun at Mount San Jacinto College at about 9.30 this morning. They're saying they still are looking for it. So at this point... Campus is closed. A couple of nearby schools have closed as a precaution. There will be no more classes at Mount San Jacinto College today as they continue to look for whoever this may have been with this gun. And the Sheriff's Department is expected to possibly give some kind of update at noon in about 10 minutes. We'll definitely uh, dip in if we can catch that. The other story that's developing, this is internationally, uh, the Dutch Royal Military Police are investigating what they say is a suspicious situation at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. A tweet that was on the airport's official Twitter account also said that police were looking at a situation on board a plane. CNN is reporting that they've talked with police in Amsterdam, and the police have told them that passengers and crew are safely off that plane in Amsterdam's situation, whatever it happens to be. They have not described exactly what's been going on. Dutch public broadcaster uh, NOS has said that emergency services were flocking to the airport. And according to RTL Netherlands, there was an alarm that actually sounded at the airport. This is going to be Europe's third busiest airport in the capital of the Netherlands. It is... uh, London's Heathrow is number one. Uh, Paris's airport, Charles de Gaulle, is number two. So so Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, the third busiest airport in all of Europe. And at this point, no idea exactly what happened. 
but the airplane, according to police there, the airplane itself has been evacuated safely, crew and passengers off, but still they're investigating what what they describe only as a suspicious situation at that airplane or on that airplane at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. All right. Um, USC has been a uh, target of the show for some time now because of their uh, hot rails and their propensity for cheating and lying and all that sort of thing. Oh, and taking your money while they're at it. USC trustees have finally approved some far-reaching changes to their governing board. And the whole point, they say, is to shore up some of the weaknesses when it comes to leadership and make sure that they do not go through the series of scandals that they've seen over the last couple of years. They do not want to repeat Dr. Carmen Pugliafito or any of the other number of people uh, that have gone by the wayside. One of the issues is that in an institution that size, there appeared to be an ability to explain away or hope things would never become public issues that they should have addressed early on that were never addressed. So the trustees decided that they will reduce the size of the board of trustees. They will impose term limits on their trustees and age limits, which I think is interesting. They want to diversify the membership. They want to limit the ability of the president of the university and the board chair to hand pick members of the executive committee for the first time ever. The USC board will publicly disclose membership on committees, including Academic Affairs Committee, the Finance Committee. And for most private institutions who have boards like this, they publicly tell you, at least give you the list of names of which members are on which committees. And USC had not been doing that. In addition, they say that they will create an independent board to oversee the $1.7 billion uh, for medicine, which includes the USC hospitals, USC clinics throughout Southern California. Somebody sent us the uh, the version of this overnight uh, and emailed to us the explanation that went out to USC employees, staff members, etc. And officials say they hope that these are going to provide more diverse perspectives, uh, innovate some of the thinking that's going on in the Board of Trustees, And then also speed up the decision-making. The decision-making, I think, is probably where they got into trouble. Now, the Board of Trustees itself, it's hard to believe that they would have known things like Carmen Pugliafito was doing hot rails with uh, hookers in in a hotel in Pasadena. But they had to know that this guy had been reprimanded before for doing drugs with and hanging out with students. Because that's where you get your meth, I guess. They, It's hard to believe that the Board of Trustees knew the specific details about a gynecologist who was taking liberties with female patients for years. But that should have risen to the level of getting the attention of the Board of Trustees. That's one of the things they have to work on is this, this decision-making and the flow of information from these individual departments where – massive problems, not a little problem, massive problems are not being dealt with. They have not yet figured out whether they will share meeting agendas. That's still probably going to be uh, secret. 
They will um, maybe disclose some of the highlights or the actions that are taken during private meetings, but that they will make those decisions, how much information we get on a case-by-case basis. Rick Caruso is the chair of the Board of Trustees, and he says these are really big, meaningful changes. I'm very proud of my fellow trustees because change sometimes is a little bit difficult, but we are on a path to allow the board to be more engaged, more authentic, require more accountability of the administration, and really be more connected to the campus. By the way, the um, the new president, Carol Folt, huge, huge kudos to her because it sounds like Carol Folt is kind of walking around and slapping people on the side of the head and just saying, listen, this is a world-renowned university. We should not be in the position we're in where our public relations office is the busiest office on campus. That should not be the case. A communications professor who uh, is a member of a group called Concerned Faculty of USC also says this is significant process, uh, significant progress, sorry. But Larry Gross is concerned that the board did not act on a key demand of some of the faculty, that students and professors be given seats on the governing board and the committees. Faculty said that's a disconnect between them and the trustees that prevents these ongoing, long-standing concerns from advancing more quickly to the board. They have to go through the process rather than having an advocate regularly attend these meetings and have actual power when it comes to bringing these issues up before the board. All right, we come back. We'll get into trending. And also, sleep divorce is a thing, and it's on the rise. Sleep divorce. Just sleeping in separate beds if you're a couple. We'll talk about that when we come back to Gary and Shannon. KFI AM 640 Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. We are following that story at a Mount San Jacinto College on lockdown. Still looking for what they said was a report of a man with a gun earlier today, almost two and a half hours ago now. Um, so I figured, listen, if they haven't found anybody yet, they're not going to find anybody. Uh, also, uh, the story out of uh, the Netherlands, it looks like they have gotten everybody off of a plane in uh, Schiphol Airport there in Amsterdam. Suspicious situation reported, uh, reported aboard that plane, uh, which will be, I guess it's later tonight, so 8 or 9 o'clock in, uh, in the Netherlands right now. The, do- the Dutch Royal Military Police tweeted they were investigating the situation. But that's it. It just says we'll keep you posted. They later tweeted the passengers and crew were safely off the plane and that the investigation continues. So what they uh, one of the Dutch news outlets referred to this as a grip three situation, which I don't understand the translation of it. But grip three is an acronym for something. It means that the threat to the well-being of large groups of the population within one municipality. There were specific areas of the airport that had been cordoned off with police tape. Appear, uh, officers appeared to be putting parts of the airport under lockdown. So we'll keep an eye on that. What else is going on? Time for What's Happening. 
Earlier this week, we told you about these two murder suspects who escaped from jail in Monterey County. They have been arrested. Santos Fonseca and Jonathan Salazar, 21 and 20 years old, locked up at the Natividad Road uh, jail pending murder charges in a couple of separate cases. But they, they got out of jail by cutting a hole in a ceiling in a bathroom in an area that was not covered by security cameras and kind of squeezed their way out. They were picked up by Border Patrol and taken back to Monterey County. They just held an update on the uh, quick news update from the Sheriff's Department up there and just basically saying that they got caught. Yesterday there was what they thought was a break in this case because somebody had reported seeing one of these guys at a Motel 6, and then they got into a standoff, surrounded the motel with SWAT team, and several hours later they walk in and he's not there. One of the cousins of the family members that was shot and killed by the cartel down in Mexico is asking President Trump for help. In a phone interview today, a guy named uh, Daniel LeBaron, a cousin of one of the moms that was killed, said the family's still trying to sort out exactly what happened. He told told Fox, we thought it might have been mistaken identity, but now we've had quite a bit of evidence that once the attack began, they continued it knowing that there were women and children in the vehicle. So as far as why it happened, we're not sure yet, which is my point. My point was the vehicles themselves were far apart. They weren't driving in a three-person, a three-unit caravan. They were supposedly several minutes apart on this roadway. And some of the women got out of the vehicles to raise their hands and show that they were not a threat and they were still killed. Children escaping the SUVs were literally shot in the back. You can't mistake a nine-year-old for a drug cartel member. There are warring cartels in that area, but in terms of whether or not they were caught in an actual crossfire, it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, I am uncomfortable with this. T.I. is trending. The rapper, T.I.? Uh, rapper T.I. has an 18-year-old daughter. And he said in an interview on a podcast that I do not want to listen to that he accompanies her to her obstetrics exams or uh, gynecology exams, I guess, right? Obstetrics more pregnancy people. Is, uh, her ob appointments. Mm-hmm. He goes with her. Mm hmm. His 18 year old Mm-mm. daughter's name is Deja. She just graduated high school. She's attending her first year of college. And the reason he goes with his daughter every year for her annual gynecological exam is to ensure that she is still a virgin. Excuse me, what? To ensure that she's still a virgin. How old is she? 18. I'm going to read to you his quote. Uh, because at first, it's on a podcast called, where did it go? Like the Lady, Ladies Like Us podcast. And the hosts of the podcast thought that he was joking. Clifford Joseph Harris Jr. is his real name. Clifford, you must be joking. And he says, we'll go and sit down and the doctor will come back and talk. And the doctor's maintaining a high level of professionalism. And I'm like, hey, Deja, they want you to sign this because the doctor doesn't want to give divulge information, you know, if he doesn't have to, to somebody who's not the direct patient. Deja, they want you to sign this so we can share information. Is there anything you would not want me to know? 
And then he turns to the doctor and he goes, see, doc, no problem. Ugh. Ugh. The doctor even told dad, there are many other ways for a hymen to break besides sex. And many virgins no longer have hymens intact. And he wasn't having any of it because apparently he's got a degree in something. And he's describing the other things that can can break a hymen. And, and he says, look, Doc, she don't ride no horses. She don't ride no bike. She don't play no sports. Just check the hymen, please, and give me back my oh results my God, expeditiously. Barf. No. None of your business. I thought I was bad for a 19-point phone contract. I mean, I'm pretty comfortable right now. That is. I'm, I'm pretty okay. Yeah. Uh, James Dean is trending as well because they're going to put James Dean in a new movie. Uh, yes, I know what you're thinking. What they're doing is they're going to put him in a Vietnam-era action drama called Finding Jack. The people who are doing this obtain the rights to use James Dean's image from his family and they're going to be working with a bunch of different uh, computer-generated uh, images, special effects houses, to describe to to make what they say is a realistic version of James Dean. This is based on the existence, the abandonment of more than ten thousand military dogs at the end of the Vietnam War, and James Dean's the computerized James Dean will play a character called Rogan, uh, a secondary lead role, is what they're saying. They're using uh, some old technology, or I'm sorry, they're using new technology to go back and actually take live film footage of James Dean and use that to create this new person, computer-ish James Dean, and put him in this movie. Pre-production on Finding Jack is supposed to start this month. They're talking about a worldwide release coming up next Veterans Day, so uh, November of 2020. And then finally, yes, if you were on BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit, you did see yesterday evening a horse on a train. Station agents for BART had to check the rule books to see if they could allow a horse on a BART train. And since it was a mini horse, and since we're so absolutely <laughs> freaking weak and we need to have mini horse service animals uh, what did it have a vest uh it didn't have a vest the picture doesn't show a vest but there is a there's a i don't know what you'd call it a halter Harness. so they gonna let that on Harness a plane is a good now word. oh yeah. yeah oh god there's you haven't seen that picture of the mini horse on the plane no oh yeah that's, that's i just ignore there. dumb stuff well, you know this is the thing i i just this is a frustrating if you're I understand service animals. I understand it. I understand emotional support animals. I get it. Stick with the small, fluffy kind. The kind you can carry and cuddle and get that comfort or whatever you exactly. need. Exactly. Not a mini horse. Although those are pretty cute. <laughs> Stop it. When we come back, sleep divorce. It's on the rise. We'll tell you what it is. Also, a chance at a thousand bucks coming up. Gary and Shannon, KFI, AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. If you win that $1,000, they will contact you by phone. So you got to answer the phone to pick up 1000 bucks, even if it is from a number you don't recognize. 
Another chance an hour from now, and then all the way through the John and Ken Show and through the first hour of the Conway Show, giving away $1,000 an hour right here on KFI. By the way, false alarm in Amsterdam. They said it was a false alarm prompted the uh, major security alert at uh, Schiphol Airport. Air Europa confirmed that one of their pilots entered a code that indicated a hijacking. So, in the flight, uh, Amsterdam to Madrid this afternoon was activated by mistake, a warning that triggers protocols on hijackers at the airport. And the airline says nothing happened. All uh, passengers are safe and sound, waiting to fly soon. Again, false alarm. The pilot somehow, for some reason, entered in a code that suggested that a hijacking had taken place, but uh, not the case. All right. A senior behavioral and social scientist at Rand Corporation has talked about sleep divorce, and it's a thing. And Wendy Troxell says there is a cultural shame in sleep divorce, but that there shouldn't be. Uh, Sleeping together, I mean, euphemistically, of course, means getting it on. But it just means literally that you're sleeping in the same bed. And the old wives tale, well, the old standby that if you screw up, you're going to be on the couch, right? You don't get to sleep in the same bed. So nightly, this kind of serves as a referendum. You kind of get to re regauge how you're doing in your relationship as to whether or not you get to sleep in your own bed or the bed. First of all, scientifically proven, you do not sleep better when you are sleeping with someone. People always sleep a tiny bit worse when they share a bed. For straight couples, this means like men are more likely to have certain sleep disorders like apnea or snoring. Women are more vulnerable to insomnia. They're lighter sleepers a lot of times. Their threshold for being awakened by your partner could be lower. They, in my case, my wife constantly heard the kids all the time. I would never hear them. (laughs) Maybe that's a mom thing. I think that is. 12% of married couples sleep in separate beds. 12%. I have a question. Yes, you, the blonde. How uh how <laughs> how do they have relations if they're So here's an interesting thing. Because remember that that woman that I talked about, Wendy Troxel, senior behavioral and social scientist at RAND. She says, um if you specifically ask someone do they prefer to sleep alone or together and they're in a relationship, almost all of the people say they prefer to sleep with their partner. And she said sleep is definitely Important, right? I mean, that's a thing. But other parts of this are important. Love is important. The sex is important. And she says it, it does not necessarily mean that if you sleep in a different bed or even a different room that you're in a sexless relationship. And she says that misnomer is damaging to people because they assume that if they do want to sleep in a different bed, then that means they're telling their partner they don't want to have sex with them anymore. But I think the probability of that happening is probably lower if Ex- you're not even in the same bed. Exactly. I mean, come on. Uh, sleep, evolutionary, is unsafe, evolutionarily speaking, she says. Because, listen, you're lying down. That's not a good defensive posture. 
You're semi-conscious, also not great when you're trying to fend off the wolves or whatever. Your eyes are closed, not great defensively. We're social. We derive a sense of safety from our connections with others. And if you've got two people there in that same position, there is at least chance that someone is going to wake up when the monsters come to eat you, right? Yeah. Evolutionarily wife, speaking. But not you. <laughs> Um, She says, uh, you know, sleeping together means that you have a successful relationship. If you believe that, then that can damage your sleep. She says it's perfectly acceptable for you to go to your partner, your sleep bed partner, whatever you want to call them. It's 2019. Call them what you want. And say to them, we should think about sleeping apart. I'll tell you right now, I would be pissed off. Yeah, me too. I would be angry. What's the point? Uh, Can you saying, sleep with somebody else in the other bed? Is that what they're doing? Just <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, the, they said rather than talk about it, a lot of times people will just get more and more resentful. You you lay there, arms crossed, mad that whoever's sleeping next to you either falls asleep really quickly or talks in their sleep or has restless leg syndrome or snores or whatever. And you got to have that honest but uncomfortable conversation about what you want and need, just as you would at any other part of the relationship. That this is just a different, this is just another portion of it. And it's cold too when you don't have the other body. Get in the an bed. electric blanket. Oh, Come on. please, it's no. It's too hot. With well, the- <laughs> move away from the coast then. I know plenty of areas where it's going to be 107 and degrees. And there's power of touch and all that kind of stuff too. Oh, now you're getting all mushy. I know. Mushy, gross. All right, we'll come back. We'll talk about what's going on with uh, Swamp Watch in D.C. We have an idea of what public impeachment hearings will look like. We know when they're going to start. We'll talk about that. And the idea that these transcripts being released by the Democrats are shedding light on anything, it's not as simple as saying that. We'll talk about that when we come back to Gary and Shannon. KFI AM 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. At the top of the hour, Alex Stone is going to join us about the uh, two escaped inmates from Monterey County. Remember, they cut a hole in the ceiling of the bathroom and made their way out. Uh, Well, they were picked up by Border Patrol and taken back to Monterey County. We'll talk about that update. A couple of developing stories we're keeping our eyes on. Number one, Riverside County Sheriff's Department says they're still looking for reports of somebody with a gun, a student with a gun at Mount San Jacinto College. Campus has been on lockdown for about three hours now. They have canceled all the classes and everything, but they have not found anybody. And they said that there's not an active shooter situation. There were no reports of any injuries, no reports of even any shots fired, just that somebody may have seen somebody with a weapon. So and we'll talk about that. And then, of course, the one internationally that we have followed as well, the, uh, the emergency response at Amsterdam's uh, airport Schiphol, turns out it was a false alarm. I guess an Air Europa pilot entered a code that would have indicated a hijacking. So they were able to go in and uh, get everybody off the plane and figure out that it was just a simple mistake, false alarm, and everything at that airport is getting back to normal in what is Europe's third largest airport. 12.30 every day we get into Swamp Watch. 
drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together. The big news out of Washington, D.C. continues to be the impeachment inquiry. We found out today a little bit more about how Democrats are going to be running things in the coming days. Inez De La Cutera joins us uh, covering the story on Capitol Hill for us and for ABC News. Inez, uh, Congressman Schiff came out today and explained what's going to happen next week. Let us in on his little secrets. That's right. Yes. So we found out the timing of the first open hearings that Democrats voted on last week. They had said they were going to be holding these public public hearings, but we hadn't been given an exact timeline. We're now learning that they will be held on November 13th. Uh, So next Wednesday with Bill Taylor, who is the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, and George Kent, who is a current uh, State Department official. And then on Friday, we'll get uh, Marie Yovanovitch. She will also testify publicly. She is the former ambassador to Ukraine, who was allegedly pushed out by Rudy Giuliani. So this is all part, of course, of this new, more public phase. It's also why we're getting these deposition transcripts released. We actually got a uh, we just got Bill Taylor's deposition transcript just moments ago, so we're still pouring through that. But this is all, um, you know, part of, of, of uh, House investigators trying to make their case to the public. So Adam Schiff talked about it this morning. He said he doesn't expect the facts here in these public hearings to be any different than what we've seen in these deposition transcripts and from the opening statements that were released um, but that this is about letting the public see for itself uh, what is really going on here. And then he also wants to kind of have the public see that uh, Republicans have been involved in the process. So Democrats have been heavily criticized for uh, by Republicans, Republicans saying that the process has been unfair, that they feel they've been excluded from this whole process. And Democrats hope that in making this process more transparent now and having these public hearings and releasing deposition uh, transcripts, they'll be able to push back on that criticism. The, the transcripts that have been released of the interviews that have been done include Gordon Sundland from yesterday, the ambassador of the EU, and Kurt Volker. Is there a chance that those two are called before these uh, before the the committees in public hearings? Yes, absolutely. They're going to be looking at bringing in, uh, you know, they're, so they're bringing in Bill Taylor, George Kent, Marie Ivanovich, all people who have already testified. So it's absolutely likely that uh, Gordon Sondland and Kurt Volker will also be brought in. They've um, both of those are really key witnesses. Gordon Sondland, especially, um, you know, with the news that came out of him yesterday and that he had this kind of stunning reversal and that he had initially testified that there was no quid pro quo only to then come back and review his testimony and and say that um, after hearing other witnesses testify that had refreshed his memory and that he now remembered that he had told a Ukrainian official that uh, aid to Ukraine was contingent on Ukraine announcing that it was investigating the president's political opponent. So Democrats are likely going to want to talk to Sondland again and, and clarify that and clarify why he did not recall and then did eventually recall the quid pro quo. And then on the flip side, Kurt Volker is also of great interest to Republicans. He is someone who has stood by, uh, you know, this argument that there was no quid pro quo. He says he doesn't know 
why why aid to Ukraine was held up. He said it was unusual that aid to Ukraine was held up, but that he didn't know why it was held up. So Republicans today have been pointing to Volcker's testimony saying, you know, this is evidence that there was no quid pro quo here. You had Jim Jordan talking about that this morning. And then you also had the president tweeting about uh, Kurt Volcker actually tweeting a line from Volcker's testimony and thanking Volcker for his uh, for, for testifying. So I'm sure Republicans are going to want Volcker to come in as well. Um, the, the details of or the rules, I should say, of whether or not Republicans can call their own witnesses, the way it was spelled out in that uh, resolution that was passed last week. Can Republicans call their own test, uh, their own witnesses? And do those witnesses have to be approved by the chairman, um, Adam Schiff? Yeah, so that's the, the one of the, the the contentious issues here is that Republicans are allowed to, but it has to be approved by uh, the committee. So uh, Republicans are saying, you know, this isn't fair. We're not going to be allowed to bring in the people we want because the committees are House Democrats are then going to vote against our, our witnesses saying that for whatever reason they don't have a, a place here and, sh- and shouldn't be brought in. So that's one of the main concerns here. Another concern is that uh, White House lawyers are not might not be allowed inside the room. So Republicans are still going to push back and say that the process here isn't um, what they would want it to be. Another interesting uh, change in terms of the rules uh, compared to what we've seen in the past. So this isn't going to be a typical congressional hearing, you know, in the past when we had the Kavanaugh hearings or the Mueller hearings, it was a kind of in five minute blocks that, that witnesses would testify. And you had, you know, Democrats asking questions for five minutes, then a Republican would ask more questions for five minutes, and it would kind of go back and forth between the two, which made it easy, frankly, for witnesses to kind of dodge questions and run out the clock if they wanted to. So this time around, they've kind of changed the rules, and they're going to have witnesses testify in 45-minute chunks. So I think what we're going to see is going to be a lot more like a trial with uh, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle kind of asking questions to build up their own narrative to try and convince the public of the case they're trying to make. Right. And as thank you, we appreciate it. Thank you. And as De La Cutera there again from Capitol Hill, the latest on what's going on with the uh, impeachment inquiry. And again, Adam Schiff announced today that they will be calling witnesses in the first public hearings next week. Uh, on Wednesday, George Kent, a top State Department official, and William Taylor, the top diplomat in Ukraine, and then uh, also Wednesday, and then former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Yovanovitch, Marie Yovanovitch, will uh, testify on Friday. When we come back, some elections that took place yesterday, and a lot of people are putting a lot of uh, a lot of impact in whether or not the Democrats won the governorship or who won the legislatures, and I don't know if any of that matters just yet. We'll talk about that when we come back to Swamp Watch. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Shannon's out today. Travel day for her and the Chargers actually making their way all the way up to, uh, I don't know how they're going to make it there in time for the game tomorrow night, but they're going to Oakland. What? what what's that face? Smug. No, no face. Not her face. Why is your voice so high all of a sudden? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> 
There was a uh, a British actor who came to the United States to make it in Hollywood, and he did to a degree. Had you know medium sized IMDb page, and decided that he wanted to give back by fighting ISIS. So he kind of did finger quotes two tours fighting ISIS, and now he's trying to come back into the United States, but he's not being allowed to. It's a strange story about what he thinks he has as a bargaining chip to come back into the U.S. And whether or not the killing of the head of ISIS, al-Baghdadi, changes his his claims at all. All right. uh, So in Swamp Watch, we talk about what's going on in Washington and things near Washington, perhaps. Uh, Kentucky's race for governor went into overtime. The Democrat there appears to be winning, or I should say the Democrat is winning. Uh, although it does not look like the Associated Press has declared a winner in that case. They said 100 pre- precincts have reported. Again, this is the governor of Kentucky. And right now, the Democrat, Andy Bashir, who is a state attorney general right now and happens to be the son of the last Democratic governor of Kentucky, Steve Bashir, Andy Bashir is at 709,673 votes. The current governor, current Republican governor, Matt Bevin, uh, one of the guys that the president has chummed up to or I ch- chummed, chum chummy, chummied with, chum. The president has chum. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Matt Bevin is at 704,523. That's uh, less than 1% point and just over 5,000 votes. In competing speeches last night, not a surprise, Andy Bashir claimed victory. Matt Bevin refused to concede. Um, Andy Bashir said, my expectation is he'll honor the election that was held tonight. That will help us make this transition. I'll tell you what, we will be ready for the first day in office, and I look forward to it. Uh, I guess Kentucky inaugurates governors in December after an election, so we've only got a few weeks to to figure this thing out. Matt Bevin had said this is a close, close race. He's not conceding by any stretch of the imagination. And he says they want the process to be followed, and there is a process. He alluded to uh, some irregularities that he was going to look into, some voting irregularities, but he didn't get into specifics. And the campaign hasn't said anything specifically about what this means. Now, Kentucky, just as a side note, it does have a recount law which only says it's not mandatory. There's no specific number that demands a recount like we do here in California. And Matt Bevan can actually ask that counties recount. They'll re-canvas their results. Um, But that's actually a check of the vote count to make sure that the results were added correctly. He would actually have to go to court to get approval for a specific recount. Oh, and by the way, he'd have to pay for it, too. So some of the other Republicans, high-ranking Republicans in the state of Kentucky have already given it up. They said, yes, Andy Bashir, the Democrat, won. So that's not a big, you know, I don't think this is going to turn into a giant thing. Now, Donald Trump carried Kentucky by a landslide in 2016. Donald Trump as president is still popular within Kentucky, and he even took the center stage in the campaign, uh, I think it was on Monday, as a matter of fact, to try to get his supporters out for Matt Bevin. And there were polls that showed Matt Bevin trailing by double digits. So the fact that he would lose by or is losing currently by just over 5,000 is pretty, 5,000 votes is pretty significant. That's less than a percentage point. The president um, 
took credit on Wednesday because Republican candidates did sweep attorney general, secretary of state, auditor, treasurer, agriculture commissioner. And he said our big Kentucky rally on Monday night had a massive impact on all of the races. And he claimed that Matt Bevin picked up at least 15 points in the last days. I don't know if I ever saw one that was 15 points, but uh, but perhaps not enough is what he said. Urban areas in Louisville, Lexington, he did win. uh, Bashir, that is, dominated in those areas. And he did win some traditionally Republican suburban counties in the northernmost part of Ohio, just south of Cincinnati. So Bashir made some inroads in eastern Kentucky as well, won several counties in a region where Trump is very, very popular. So the idea that this, uh, what we saw yesterday in Kentucky or Virginia or other places that were voting for legislatures, that these were uh, sort of the the canary in the coal mine for whether or not people are going to come out to vote next year on November 3rd, vote for president, I don't think it's really winning. I don't think that's a that, that theory makes a whole bunch of sense. And we're going to see primaries and caucuses between now and then, obviously, and we'll see whether or not voter turnout is high in those things. And people will try to read into the tea leaves about this being truth that everybody in the uh, everybody in these swing states hates President Trump or everybody in these swing states loves President Trump or we have no idea. People wanted to talk about the legislative legislative races in Virginia uh, as as a way to really get a litmus test for how people are responding to messages that are put out by Democrats on the campaign trail. Well, do you know what? The Democrats that did win in those legislative races in Virginia they were much more moderate Democrats than Elizabeth Warren and Medicare for All or uh, or Bernie Sanders. And trust me, I'm Santa Claus or and to be honest, even more moderate in some areas than Joe Biden, who is criticized by members of the Democratic Party for being too Republican, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, Andy Bashir says that he does want to legalize casino gambling in Kentucky, wants to use that revenue to support public pensions. Some Republican lawmakers campaigning for uh, Matt Bevin vowed to reject that idea if it came before them in the legislature. We'll see how that goes. This is going to be an interesting several months. Again, less than a year before the November 3rd elections. And uh, I think more importantly is that we're just a couple of months away now from the Iowa caucuses, February 3rd, 2020. When uh, when we come back, an update on the uh, guys who broke out of jail up in Monterey County. Alex Stone's going to join us for that when we come back to the Gary and Shannon show. Shannon, KFI AM 640 live everywhere on the iHeart Radio app. House Democrats today, one of the big stories announced they're going to hold the first public hearings next week in their impeachment inquiry of President Trump. Three State Department officials, including the uh, former ambassador to Ukraine, will testify on Wednesday and Friday. Suspect has been arrested and it was under investigation, but they're now saying did not have a connection. With the deaths of nine U.S. citizens, cartel gunmen ambushed their vehicles there in northern Mexico. The Agency for Criminal Investigation for the state of Sonora said that they did pick up a guy who was holding a couple of people hostage. They found a bunch of weapons as well. 
Now they're saying it. Uh, he was not likely tied to the deaths of those nine people. And uh, Mount San Jacinto College still looking for somebody with a gun. About 930 is when they got the report. Classes have been canceled. The campus had been on lockdown for some time. And they still have not found anybody. Uh, locally, one of the other, at least in the state, one of the big stories was a couple of men who escaped from Monterey County Jail have been located and arrested uh, at the border. Alex Stone has been covering the story for us and for ABC News. Alex, were they were they coming or going when they got arrested? Yeah, so this is the weird part. They were coming back into the U.S. That they had gone they into Mexico. They were in Tijuana. They don't know how they got down there, and they were coming back in early this morning. They were kind of trying to come across the Ped West entrance from Tijuana into San Diego, and they gave over their information. They acted like everything was cool, and then uh, CBP, the, the Border Patrol, they said, wait a second. They ran their information and, and found that they were wanted and that they were the escapees out of Monterey County. So they're both now in custody. We just got an update a little while ago from Monterey County, and the one thing they know everybody wants to know How'd they get down there? Everybody wants to know how they got from Salinas to Mexico. We'll do everything we can to figure that out. They say they have no idea. And why did they stay together? If you're on the run and you broke your way out of jail, wouldn't you think maybe we split up? This would be better. They say they don't know that either. I do know they were arrested together. That's an excellent question that we will ask in their interview. And they're trying to figure that out. So the two guys, 20-year-old Jonathan Salazar, 21-year-old Santos Fonseca, both born and raised in Salinas. They have lived their whole lives there. They are not from Mexico, but they are linked to different gangs and then may have connections down in Mexico. Uh, remember, they cut their way through the ceiling of the Monterey County Jail, shimmied up and crawled uh, past the, the pipes real close uh, opening up in the, the ceiling compartment, then kicked open a, a hatch, and, and then they got out. And they were on the run the last couple of days. They had been held on suspicion of murder. They had not gone to trial yet, so they had not been tried or convicted. Uh, so they go back now. They're en route right now from the San Diego area up to Monterey County. In the next hour or so, they should be back in the Monterey County Jail. And that's going to be their new home now with the murder charges, attempted murder, the gang enhancements, and now escape added on to that. What happened yesterday? My understanding was they thought they had at least one of these guys at a nearby motel. Yeah, this was going on last night in Marina in Monterey County. It went on for about eight hours. There was a standoff at a Motel 6. They thought one of the two had been in there. Somebody had spotted them. They brought in the SWAT team. They had them surrounded. They brought in canine. And then in the end, after those eight hours, they went in and nobody was in there. They don't know if at some point they had been there, but probably a while ago, being that during this whole thing, they were apparently in Tijuana, and this was up in central to, to northern California. Uh, or if it was just a complete mistake. But the sheriff's department says they were being careful. They had information that these two guys had probably gone into Mexico. They didn't know for sure that they had gotten a tip that at least one, if not both, were in that Motel 6. So they treated it as if they were in there. Turned out they weren't. And the, the whole time they were down in Mexico. Any chance there was a, you know, budding relationship here? I mean, because these guys were for, were from different gangs, my understanding. And like you said, there's no real reason why they would have stayed together unless love. <laughs> they don't know. Uh, yeah, they were from opposing gangs that if they were on the street, they'd want to murder each other and apparently had been uh, murdering opposing gang members. Uh, but why they stuck together, how they got to know each other in jail, they don't know. But they're going back into the Monterey County Jail, the same jail that they broke out of. They're going to be in a different housing unit. The Sheriff's Department saying, whoa, 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 before you even ask us, 
they won't be in that same wing where they, they broke out. They're going to be separated. They won't be in the same unit, so they can't conspire to do anything else. And the sheriff's department says they're going to do everything they can to prevent them from escaping again, which is reassuring, right? This is the same jail that, remember, five years ago had an escape. A guy got into the air ducts and was able to escape that way. So they've had three escapes in the, the last four or five years. They say they're going to do their best to make sure that Salazar and Fonseca don't find their way back out. Right. All right, Alex, thank you. Appreciate it. Later. Alex Stone there with the latest on uh, these two escapees. Again, picked up. Uh, they left the Monterey County Jail over the weekend and then were picked up coming back in from Tijuana early this morning and will be on their way back to or are on their way back to the Mer- uh, Monterey County Jail. When we come back, we're going to get an update from Dave Packer uh, about this uh, the murder of the nine people down in northern Mexico, six children, three women, all of them American citizens. It's not just a strange story because of that. It's a strange story because of the group that these people belong to. It's been in northern Mexico for decades, and they are no stranger to violence. We know that. We also have a chance at 1000 bucks coming up. We'll tell you how you can win it when we come back to the Gary and Shannon Show. If you win that $1,000, you'll get a phone call to let you know that you won. So you got to answer the phone to pick up a grand. It's probably going to be from a 513 area code, just so you know. Another chance next hour during the John and Ken Show, about 20 minutes past. And then every hour through their show, all the way through the first hour of the Conway Show, we give away 1000 bucks an hour here on KFI. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. At the bottom of this hour, we'll get into this story about this British actor Comes to Hollywood to make a name for himself. Feels like he's called to do bigger things. Goes to Syria to fight ISIS. And now he's trying to come back in to the United States. And uh, he says he thinks he's got something that could be his bargaining chip to get back in. We'll tell you all about Michael Enright at the bottom of the hour. The story that we followed for the last couple of days now is this horrific story of nine people. Three women, six children, all of them American citizens killed in northern Mexico, appears to be by a drug cartel. In terms of the motive, though, it's a little bit more confusing. Dave Packer is joining us, covering the story for ABC News and for KFI. And a top Mexican military official uh, has briefed reporters. Dave, what did he say? Yeah, General Homero Mendoza briefing reporters on because it's really still trying to figure out what the motivation was. What we know is they're focusing right now on this criminal group called La Lina. And Mendoza said they assume that they're the ones who carried out the attack. Now, they are strongly in control in the Chihuahua state there. They've been in a fight with elements from a cartel, Los Salazar. They're aligned with the uh, Sinaloa cartel. You know, you've probably heard of that. But what's interesting is uh, La La Nira is not really a, a drug organization. It's more of a criminal organization. So there doesn't seem to be any motivation. And by the way, particularly brutal. They, they have a reputation for that, um, which might explain why this was probably even more brutal than you would expect. Uh, usually the cartels will, will not attack children and, and defenseless women. You know, you have one woman who is basically shot point blank in front of her, her children. Just absolutely horrific. So that's what they're focusing on right now. Um, 
And again, no no word on what the motivation is right now, just speculation to uh, just basically establish that they're in control of this area. But they really don't know at this point. Uh, what's the expectation, if there is any, that the FBI would get involved with this? The administration has offered assistance from the United States. But the Mexican president has said, thank you, but no thanks. We are a sovereign nation. We're, uh, we're going to handle this on our own. And, you know, this is a domestic affair. And then he even pointed to what happened in El Paso, saying that there were uh, Mexicans in that Walmart when that shooting happened. But it was mainly American authorities that, that took care of that investigation. And so uh, using that as an example and also um, talking about Mexican sovereignty, um, at least officially, he's saying thanks, but no thanks. But we don't know. Maybe there's something going on behind the scenes that isn't being talked about. That wouldn't surprise me. There was an uh, an arrest yesterday as well that turned out to not be connected to this. You know anything about the the details of that one? Yeah, it's it's interesting. This uh, this guy, and, and you know, he, he's definitely a criminal in his own right. They found him. Um, I think he had some hostages with him, and obviously he's guilty of something, but not guilty of this. Apparently, um, they said that uh, he they thought he was a person of interest, but now they're saying that he's probably not involved. Uh, I've been a little fascinated with this uh, LeBaron family, which apparently all nine nine people who were killed were members of this family. It's been in Mexico for some time. There's a, a long history of them in terms of uh, their presence there, but also that there may have been some other violent incidents that, that the family was involved with, uh, along with the drug cartels as well. Can you tell us about that? They have been for decades. I mean, going back 50, 60 years, they, they have been. In fact, the Le Baron, there's a, there's a, the town um, is, is, is the same name as the family. So they have been there for a long time. These are um, Muslim, um, excuse me, I'm sorry, Mormon fundamentalists who, um, who kind of broke away from the church a while back. Uh, they've had a village down there. They've been doing farming, and, and uh, you know, it's a village with cows and, and, and crops. And then some of them go back and forth to the United States. Uh, in fact, um, the uh, one of the women, uh, Christina Langford, who was killed point blank, she and sure her husband had gotten a job in North Dakota, and she had planned to move there just later this week. So, there, but yeah, there have been a lot of ties, a lot of crossing the border back and forth. Uh, years ago, one of the family members said in their little village they didn't even have to speak Spanish. You never had to learn Spanish because it was just this isolated area uh, where these uh, American transplants uh, had lived. Awesome, Dave. We appreciate all the information. Thank you. Absolutely, Dave. Pack, Dave Packer there from ABC News with the latest on what's going on. With this, uh, the murders of these nine people in northern Mexico. Just a quick update on a, a fire that happens to have cropped up recently. Uh, this is a brush fire that's burning in the Santa Clarita Valley, just along Deputy Jake Drive. You know that is uh, sort Near of near plas- Creekview Park. Close to that, yeah. Uh, McGrath Elementary School is right there as well. I understand that they are actually calling for the evacuation of the school um, and. Uh, I guess along Placerita Canyon, about a half a mile east and west of uh, Masters College. So if you're in that area, Masters University now, the, the helicopter has said that there is progress being made. About two acres uh, on both sides of Deputy Jake Drive. There is a you know strong neighborhood in the area in that it's pretty dense houses. But 
there's just enough area for it to burn and up around some water storage tanks as well. I have already seen at least one helicopter doing water drops, uh, and I can see on TV, Channel 5 is showing school buses that have come in, uh, been brought in to uh, evacuate some of the kids, the kids themselves walking away from the fire as they're walking sort of south down Deputy Jake Drive and getting away from this. It's just above Newhall Avenue, just just east of Newhall Avenue, again, along Deputy Jake Drive. It's only about two acres at this point. But they're already they, using super scoopers on it and stuff, so already. they're making um, progress. You know, the only the thing is, there's not a lot of space for this to go to. I mentioned Masters University just over the hill there, just north of, of where the fire is burning in Placerita Canyon. And that is a a pretty dense neighborhood as well with some pretty expensive homes. But in terms of where this is going, it just looks like it's up on a ridge there above Deputy Jake Drive. And uh, we'll keep an eye on this. And again, there's an, there's another helicopter. So they are already, are already calling for a second alarm on this just to be safe. They want to make sure they get this thing out before uh, before anything bad happens. And again, not a whole lot of wind in that area, which is significant. And it looks like it actually started in an area down below the elementary school. It's kind of up on a bluff and went up that hill, skipped over Deputy Jake Drive, which would have been a couple, you know, 40, 50 feet perhaps, and then went up the hillside there where there's nothing but that those water storage Currently, tanks. the winds are 10 miles per hour and supposed to decrease as we head toward 5 p.m. to about 5 miles per hour. So hopefully that helps and humidity is not at zero, but it's uh, 18%. So. All right. When we come back, we'll tell you again about this, uh, this guy who wanted to be an actor and then found a calling in Syria fighting ISIS. We'll explain why this guy wants to come back to the United States and what he thinks might be his key to get back into the country. Gary and Shanna will continue. Gary and Shannon. KFI AM 640 Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. A reminder of the uh, fire that we're looking at. They're calling it the Jake Fire. Up in the Santa Clarita Valley, it is burning along Deputy Jake Drive, sort of just above Newhall Avenue. Probably some smoke visible from uh, the 14 freeway there. A lot of people are already on this fire. There was one report that it was up to seven acres. It doesn't look like it's that big. I don't know exactly where that the came from. The latest from the fire department was around two acres. Yeah, so. that makes but more that sense. But that always fluctuates and stuff like this. So um, The fire itself, no active flame that I can see from the helicopter shots. Just a lot of smoke at this point. McGrath Elementary School is right there. and It looks like they were doing their best to evacuate the kids from that. Although the fire was moving away from the school. Uh, and it looks like the wind is carrying the smoke away from the school, so the kids are probably just as a just a, out of out of an abundance of caution getting those kids out of the way. But if this thing does kick up, it could move down into uh, Placerita Canyon, right along Masters University, that's back there. So at this point, they've also told some people in that area to get out. Again, helicopters in the air and super scoopers. Uh, super scoopers. So looks again like they do not have any active flames. Some ground crews are already deep into this thing trying to cut some fire line and protect those water tanks that are up there as well. All right. Uh, I want to introduce you to a guy named Michael Enright, 56-year-old guy. 56 years old, uh, comes to the United States in the uh, in the 80s, I think it is, on a, on a visitor's uh, tourist visa, right? And then, as was the case 
I guess everybody was doing it, overstays his visa. Continues to get work. He's got, a, I guess, a, just an incredible ability to do different accents. And gets a lot of work as a character guy in movies and TV shows. He's been all over the place. He was, uh, he was in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for a while. He was in a movie with Tom Cruise called Night and Day. Just basically living the dream of doing all of these different parts around L.A., getting paid for it. Rubbing elbows with some of the highfalutin people, driving a Porsche, that kind of thing. Well, his friends say that he, his friends say that he was very impulsive. And in the 90s, as an example, he flew to Rwanda after the genocide there to volunteer at an orphanage. It, it, it hung on him, it weighed him down, and he wanted to try to do something. His friends said that the work at that orphanage in Rwanda appealed to his Christian notion of obligation, that we are all commanded to alleviate suffering. After his time in the orphanage, he comes back into the United States, once again on a tourist visa, and once again, he overstays. And a few years later, after the September 11th attacks, friends said that uh, those attacks set him on a course that eventually would take him to Syria. After the September 11th attacks, just like everybody, we could, he couldn't stop watching the news. As hard as it was, as discouraging, frustrating, sad as it was, he couldn't stop watching the news. And he told his friends he wanted to enlist in the United States Army to fight terrorists in Afghanistan. He thought this was going to be his chance to pay forward the debt that he believed he owed the United States. For letting him live here, letting him make money as an actor, etc. But his friends talked him out of it. And he says that not going to Afghanistan was the biggest regret of his life. Listen, he's not getting rich. Michael Enright is not getting rich as an actor in Hollywood. He's one of the run-of-the-mill actors doing all of these different parts. He worked on Kitchen Confidential. He worked on Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. He worked on Law and Order. He lived uh, in a part of West L.A. that was known for gang violence. He had his own brush with the law in 2003, charged with assault with a deadly weapon. There was a car crash. Michael Enright says this guy threatened him during a traffic incident. Now, he was eventually exonerated, according to court records. But there was something else that appealed, remember, to that notion that he wanted to alleviate suffering. And it was October, sorry, August of 2014. Islamic State troops, ISIS, goes into the Sinjar district in northern Iraq and wipes out swaths of the population, specifically Yazidis, an ethnic Kurdish minority. Hundreds of men were killed. Women were taken captive, raped, forced marriages. And he says, I became sort of an ISIS junkie and couldn't stop watching the news. He eventually, after having a couple of brews with a buddy at a pub, signs onto a Facebook page that's associated with YPG, the initials used for the People's Protection Units, a militia, mostly Kurdish militia. And he says, I would like to fight for you against ISIS in Syria. Day goes by, two days go by. 
Four days go by, and he finally gets a message back. And all the message says is, are you willing to die for this fight? Now, he has no idea who sent the message. He doesn't know the real name of the person who was on the other side of that, but he knew how he would answer, and he wrote, yes. So the guy on the other end of it says, listen, don't get any weird Hollywood ideas about this. We have very little equipment. We don't have helmets. We don't have body armor. And ISIS does. They have tanks. They have armored personnel carriers. We don't have medics. If you get hurt, the most powerful thing we can give you is aspirin, basically. And Michael Enright says, my feeling was I was going to go there. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. He sells his Porsche and buys a one-way ticket to Iraq. By the way, he's got nothing tying him here. No family, no kids. This is his adventure, right? The one time he shot a real weapon, he'd fired a couple of pistol rounds for fun in the woods. The closest he got to an assault weapon of any kind was a prop assault weapon that he shot one time in a Norton antivirus software commercial. In the day before he left, the day before he flew out of LAX on his way to eventually go to Iraq, he went to a firing range in Hill, here in L.A., and he said that was the sum total of his weapons training. He goes to U.K., puts together a, a pack for gear, his kit, boots, a jacket for the cold nights in the desert, and he keeps getting messages from this person that he was communicating with from the YPG Facebook page. And he would try to send messages, but sometimes they wouldn't come back very quickly. He called his buddy back here. Hey, I'm in London. Should I continue with this? Should I keep going on? And the buddy said, you know what? Don't chance it. Don't go to Iraq without having a clear idea of where you're going to go. He went anyway. Finally checks into a low-cost motel in Sulaymaniyya the city in Kurdistan up in Iraq, northern part of Iraq, at about 3 in the morning. There's nobody there to pick him up. He's in this dirty old hotel and starts sending Facebook messages. Finally, somebody gets back to him. When do you arrive? He says, I'm already here. That afternoon, a guy calls the hotel and asks for him. And the voice on the other end of the line says, do you want to join the YPG? And he says, yes. And the guy, again, asks him, are you willing to die? And he says, yes. He spent several weeks in a remote desert camp with the YGP fighters, basically YPG fighters, basically a boot camp, sort of a training, getting him to know how each of these weapons were going to be used, etc. They found out that he was an actor. So they put a, a hand cam in his in his hand. They wanted him to document their fight against ISIS. And he did take the footage, and he got some action pretty fast. Within a few days, his unit was ordered to clear a village that had been bombed by USS uh, by U.S. forces that were supporting YPG. And he said, I was going to go face-to-face with a terrorist, and he knew it. He spent six months fighting alongside YPG. He completed what they considered a standard tour of duty for these foreign volunteers. It didn't get any better. 
I'll explain what he did next because he goes on a second tour and then he tries to come back to the United States. I'll explain why he thinks he's owed citizenship when we come back to Gary and Shannon. Bye. Gary and Shannon. Shannon's on a travel day. Chargers in Oakland tomorrow night. KFI AM 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Been telling you about Michael Enright. 56-year-old dude leaves Hollywood, goes to Syria to fight with the YPG against ISIS. Finishes his first tour of duty. Tries to come back into the United States. Again, he's a British guy. He's overstayed a couple of visas at this point. They pick him up at Ote Mesa. According to Passport Records, U.S. Immigration Customs Enforcement corroborates this whole thing, and they put him in the in the clink. Six weeks of detention. At one point, he says, again, this is his story. There's not a lot of corroboration on this part, but he says he met with officials that he believes were working for the Department of Homeland Security. One of them, a blonde lady named Laura. And he says... She was quite pretty, among other things. Over the course of these several meetings, he would review maps of Syria with her and describe to her and to other officials his encounters with ISIS. Michael Enright says that blonde lady Laura eventually made an offer. If you go back to Syria and you get even more information about ISIS, I will make your immigration problems disappear which is basically here is a ticket to U.S. citizenship, or at least we will leave you alone for living in the country for 30 years without proper documentation. No documentation of that offer, of course. It wasn't witnessed by anybody. ICE says they will not comment on investigative methods. There were four people. The Washington Post checked up on Michael Enright's story. Four people says Enright called them about their putative offer while he was detained. And they said he was being truthful. At least what he believed was this offer. He goes back. He was deported to England, still believing that he made a deal with the U.S. government. So he decides that he's going to go back to Syria. Once again, lands in northern Iraq. Arrives there more than a year earlier as a a soldier. Now he feels like a veteran. He goes to the U.S. consulate in Erbil, meets with an FBI agent. He says he handed over a data card from an ISIS computer that he'd seized during his first tour. And he says, listen, this is, there's more where this came from. A couple of weeks later, he reaches out to the consulate again, this time via a message that he sent to the Facebook page. Said, hey, I met with an FBI guy there and I don't remember his name. I don't know why you don't remember the people's names. Anyway, the consulate responded by giving him the name, the email. As he fought his way across Syria, he kept thinking of the blonde lady. And what she allegedly told him that more information was his key to get into the United States. He films images of any any documents he can find that might help ingratiate him with the United States immigration authorities. A friend introduces him by mail to a woman who is a well-connected political insider in the state of Virginia. She 
connected him to a man that he believed to be a U.S. intelligence officer based in Texas. And he's exchanging these text messages with code names about all of this. He'd also gathered letters written by ISIS soldiers. He said they might offer clues, even though he didn't necessarily know what they were. After several gunfights, very high profile that this guy can describe, he comes back out, comes back out of Syria. And he, as a Brit, is affected by the fact that the Ariana Grande concert, remember that? The bombing outside of that was claimed by ISIS. November 2017, Michael Enright says he's ready to cash in on all of this. He's been sending all of his material to that text message person. Remember what he thought was a, a uh, intelligence official in Texas. They paid for him, by the way. The Kurds, this militia he'd been fighting for, they gave him a one-way ticket anywhere he wanted to go as a thank you for his service. So he goes to Belize. They speak English there. It's inexpensive. And from there, he would start the process of sending the intelligence information that he'd gathered to get into the United States. His immigration attorney has been working with him trying to get an S visa, which grants uh, grants legal status to people who assist law enforcement. But he can't find Laura, the blonde woman. So now he's stuck in Belize. His friends are trying to get him to come back. They're trying to bring michaelhome.com is one way they're trying to get him to come back. Greg Martin, a deputy DA in L.A., he even filmed a testimonial on Michael Enright's behalf and said that he should be given a pass, but uh, but also should be celebrated for what he's done. Some people have picked up his cause, but at this point, does he have any information that we don't already have? I mean, we did get Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and the number two and the number two. And then that number two. So Michael Enright is a guy who's kind of stuck in Belize. Uh, he may want to he may want to pitch a tent because he's going to be there a while for anybody who tries to get him back into the United States. All right, tomorrow Gary and Shannon will continue. Of course, John and Ken up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Stay dry, everybody. Compared to lying on the floor of the bank, this was Space Mountain to me. I, you know, I thought it was great. Gary and Shannon. Oh, that was fantastic. I feel a thousand percent better.